morning and welcome to Rising. Brace yourself, the election is coming. It, in fact, it is here. We have a very exciting and stacked election day show for you today. And Brianna Joy Gray is with us, of course. <laughs> and what else is going on, Brianna? Well, uh, midterms are finally here. Millions of voters across the country will head to the polls today and cast their ballots to determine who will control both the House and the Senate, as well as a number of key governor seats. Democrats remain hopeful they'll be able to cling to control of both chambers, while Republicans are confident Congress is for their taking. Sabado's final crystal ball predictions indeed see Republicans narrowly gaining control of both the House and the Senate, but we'll just have to wait and see about that. Hmm. Yesterday, Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre cautioned Americans to tamper their expectations as they await the results tonight, warning that the final vote counts may still be days away. Let's listen to that. It took two weeks to, to call every state. In modern elections, more and more ballots are being cast in early voting and also by mail. And many states don't start counting those ballots until after the ballots, uh, after, pardon me, after the polls close on November 8th. So you heard the president say this the other night. He has been very clear on this as well. We may not know all the winners of elections for a few days. It takes time to count all legitimate ballots in a legal and orderly manner. That's how, the, that's how this is supposed to work. Democratic candidate for Senate John Fetterman urged his supporters to be patient in a similar statement released yesterday. His team believes Republicans will take the early lead in today's vote counting. Fetterman blamed intentional meddling by Pennsylvania's GOP-controlled legislature, which determined that the Keystone State's mail-in and early ballots aren't counted until Election Day. And it seems former President Donald Trump, however, is moving full steam ahead, potentially, and that's regardless of the day's final tally. Last night, he had this to say about an upcoming special announcement. Specifically including the election of all the people that I'm going to name. I'm going to be making a very big announcement on Tuesday, November 15th, at Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach, Florida. We want nothing to detract from the importance of tomorrow. Wouldn't it be funny if the announcement was, I found those documents and I will be returning them to our glorious FBI. Um, Look, the man has a flair for the dramatic. It's clear yes, why he excelled he in the first instance and why he was a mainstay on our television screens long before he got into politics. And uh, he will be back for the sequel. Um, so anyway, that'll be for next week's yeah. news. Um, not much to do right now, but wildly speculate about what's to happen. Um, how are you feeling about this, Brianna? I mean, I think it's telling that the Democrats are basically saying, if we don't lose both chambers, it's a huge victory. The statements from Fetterman, the statements from the White House saying, you know, tamp down your expectations. It's, it speaks volumes. I was listening uh, in the car ride to work today to a black radio station where they were 
doing the voting shaming, they explicitly said, I'm here to shame you into voting. I can't believe we won't vote. Da -da -da. And then they listed the reasons why people should go out to vote. And while there was some, I think, substantive and constructive commentary about the importance of local elections, voting for judges, um, voting for the people who have the most proximate relationship to you as a citizen, um, a lot of it was very thin on the policies that were going to substantively make your life better, especially economic policies. And I think a lot of Democrats have woken up to the reality that they should have been hitting the economy harder this entire time, but too little too late. It's amazing that they it's taken this long for them to realize that. everyone. Everyone would have said that it's just the most basic advice that people feel like they're hurting, they care about food prices, energy prices, et cetera. Even even just that, even if you wanted to, you know, not follow the 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 kind of conservative narrative on crime or on schools, at least the economy that's something that that Bill Clinton tried to convince Democrats they needed to get right, you know, thirty years ago. Yeah, don't make me don't make me agree with Bill Clinton, but yes, it is true. It's undeniable. <laughs> the New York Times is Nate Cohen detailed four possible scenarios for this year's midterms. Scenario one, a clear Republican win. Cohen notes, quote, with five critical Senate races and dozens of House races looking like toss-ups, even some random breaks could give Republicans something that feels like a rout. Control of the Senate and a big gain of the House. Scenario two is the feels like a win for Democrats holding control of the Senate but losing the House. Cohen says the party will probably need to win three of the four most critical races, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada. Scenario three is a Republican landslide. Uh, Cohen says it's possible the polls could underestimate the GOP vote again, and it would be a bloodbath for Democrats with no question of Republicans making decisive gains in both chambers. Finally, scenario four would be a Democratic surprise, a hold in the Senate and the House. Uh, what do you think is most likely, Brie? I think there's no chance of no scenario four. four. And <laughs> scenario three is more likely that a, a, a Republican uh, blowout is... I think more likely than Democrats holding the Senate. I, as I made clear in my predictions, I think a a Republicans taking the Senate, not getting every single one of those seats. I I think they'll get either Arizona or Pennsylvania, and then Georgia will they'll get in a runoff maybe. They, so yeah. I think they'll get there for the majority. I don't think they'll necessarily get all of them, and then also get New Hampshire or whatever. But them doing that is more likely than the Democrats holding the Senate. Absolutely. And look, that's that's what. People were very critical of a take that Elon Musk had uh, earlier this week, which was to basically say it's better in a divided country if you have a Democrat in the White House to mm -hmm. have a Republican Congress. People were very upset about him dipping his toe into such an explicit political statement, telling people to vote for Republicans now that he is controlling um, Twitter. But I do think that, that as, as frustrating as that is to a lot of pundits and Democrats, broadly speaking, a mindset that is not uncommon. Mm. Uh, people who are independents feeling like, well, given the, the swing of things, we might as well put some Republicans in control and see what's going to happen. And I think that's what's going to drive a lot of the breaks to the extent that there are unpredictable breaks one way or the other or um, very close races. Yeah. It's going to go Republican. I think we're actually going to talk more about Elon Musk and what's going on on Twitter. There's so much news there <laughs> every day. I hope you're all every as interested day. in it as we are. But uh, uh, first, we're going to have more election coverage. We, of course, want you to know that our parent company, Nexstar, is covering everything going on with the 2022 midterms. Tonight, News Nation is broadcasting live starting at about 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. They are partnering with Decision Desk HQ to call all of the big races, and they'll also have journalists from across the country, including from the Hill. And of course, we'll continue to have all the election coverage that we know you love right here on Rising. So we urge you to keep watching us all day, and uh, we'll be back in just a minute.
Elon Musk called on voters to cast their ballots for Team Red in today's midterm elections. In a tweet posted yesterday, Musk wrote, quote, to independent-minded voters, shared power curbs the worst excesses of both parties. Therefore, I recommend voting for a Republican Congress, given that the presidency is Democratic. In a follow-up tweet, the new Twitter owner further highlighted that it is unlikely that hardcore Democrats and Republicans will vote against their party. So it's up to independent voters to change the balance of power. Twitter published new rules for what the platform will allow, and they ban glorification of violence, promotion of terrorism, child sexual exploitation, and also targeted harassment. But the policy does not mention, as of yet, misinformation. So that is an interesting development. Yeah, lots of, uh, lots of Elon stuff. Um, the, uh, so we should only touch on it briefly, because I guess we mentioned it um, in, in the top of the show. But uh, so his, his exhortation to vote for Republicans as a way to balance power is not a sentiment that I find appalling. I, I sort of agree with that sentiment as someone who doesn't like Republicans or Democrats. Um, I do think, obviously, if a previous CEO of Twitter had like said, you should vote for Democrats during the Trump administration, there would have been a lot of anger on Including, the part of Including, I think, probably from people like Elon Musk, who would have seen that as an unfair kind of um, putting one's thumb on yeah, the Yeah, it scale. speaks to what I said, I think, uh, earlier this week that if he wants to be the, he, he shouldn't strive to be both the referee and then one of the players, one of the sides. Yeah, that I, will I, look, I mean, he can do whatever he wants. He owns the company. I'm just for the, for optics, I don't think that's a good look. Yeah, but I, I would have warned him. I've never felt so free and happy as when I was an, an anonymous tweeter, just living yeah. my best life. But when you're working for a, a journalistic institution, where you're working for a campaign, and your responsibilities aren't just to yourself, but the institution, the game changes. Yeah. And I think what people have been really frustrated by is that he had all of these criticisms before he was CEO. And then very quickly, as advertisers started to pull out because he was making the um, site more unpredictable uh, and creating conditions that don't serve how he actually makes money, how the site actually makes money, suddenly he rushes to reassure everybody that there are going to be content policies that make it a friendly atmosphere for advertisers. And what has become increasingly clear is that as always is the case, it's a kind of corporate speech curbing that is going on here, where it's about corporations wanting to make money on the platform that's driving a lot of the content moderation decisions as opposed to wokeness. Now, there is some of the other stuff that's mm, gone on I with the totally agree with that, Hunter, but, yeah. Hunter laptop policy. But yeah. the flip-flopping you're seeing from Elon Musk, where he keeps issuing these new Twitter rules that people are making memes about because they're a mile long, suggests that he's very much learning on the job, but a lot of people could have warned him on, uh, in advance. Yeah, I, I mean, I think a lot of that is fair. I don't know. I'm, I don't know if anything's changed or not. I'm having a better time on Twitter. It seems to me some something, I don't know what it was, but something has been undone yeah. that uh, has brought people back and my engagement is up. Um, I think you, you might have had this, a similar well, experience. You, Twitter so. use, apparently, according to Elon Musk's piece, at least, is at a record high. Yeah. So people are on the platform, even if they're complaining about how they're going to leave When I don't the believe any of these celebrities, like, no, I'm done. I'm yeah, off. I I'm gone. Uh, and then they come back, no, I'm just back to tell you to vote for Democrats. Now I'm really gone. Yeah, also, they're not, they're not going to go. Nobody they're cared about go. them. People who are famous because they're actors and actresses. Nobody cares. They weren't famous because of Twitter. They're not journalists and the, pe the kind of people who really, uh, for, for yeah. whom Twitter really mattered. I will just make this last point, though, about a divided government. 
government. Eric Levitt wrote a piece uh, a couple of weeks ago that I did a radar about, about what is going to likely happen if there is a divided government. Remember the Obama years when it was all about uh, the debt ceiling and holding Democrats hostage over the debt ceiling? Um, Eric Levitt wrote that the the GOP's stated explicit uh, plan to fight inflation is to try to cut Medicare and Social Security, mm -hmm. and they're going to hold up the government, the ability to make p payments for uh, Social Security, Medicare, and all other government funding in order to get that kind of result. So I do think that there are going to be some negative implications for a divided government that people should look to if those are uh, political priorities for them. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, we could have a different uh, Ukraine funding policy with divided government. So that'd be something perhaps to it's possible. look forward to. Forward to. Um, the, other, one other, the last thing I want to say on the Elon front, you know, as he grapples with the uh, the police, the policing of misinformation, that at least is not, I think, generally a category of, of censorship that's being done in the interest of advertisers. Maybe in some cases, it's a, it's a well, in many of the cases, it's been foisted on them by, by the certainty of the mainstream media and national security officials that this piece of content is Russia-derived and should be gone. That is something that I, I think Elon... In, in theory, is well positioned to stand yeah. to resist and stand up to, and also, and this was already happening. So this is not even an Elon decision, although it's kind of coinciding its rollout with his takeover. Is the community notes feature mm -hmm. that the, the the giving fact checking abilities more to this to the to the users rather than having it being done aggressively by the site itself or yeah. by you know Facebook has this independent group doing it that's terrible mm -hmm. in several independent groups. I quite like this mm -hmm. as the answer to misinformation, not to say that because the, the censor, the moderators will get it wrong. They will get calls wrong. Sometimes they'll get it right, right. sometimes they'll get it wrong. The, the, the thought is that in a healthy, functioning, social dialogue climate, this could be wrong, we'll find out, is that with enough, if everyone can do the fact checking? Yeah, I think that's we'll great. Have I have no outcome. problem with Birdwatch. Here's where there's a problem: that Elon Musk said a lot of things about free speech, and then immediately started banning people permanently for the from the platform for making fun of him. So he famously tweeted, comedy is alive now. I have Twitter. Everything's going to be good. And he then proceeded to ban a bunch of parody accounts where people changed well, their names. And here, combined with the fact that he wants to change the verification process from its original purpose, which was to protect people from having fake parody accounts of them that genuinely confuse people. He now wants to make it so that everybody can have a blue check if they pay him $8, if they pay Twitter $8. At the same time, he wants to protect himself from being parodied by literally banning without warning accounts that make jokes about him on the app. I think that accusation of, hypo of hypocrisy is not entirely unfair, don't get me wrong. However, the policy was apparently already in place that if you're verified, you cannot um, change your name in a way that would make it not obvious who you right, are. Right, people in a, who have put parody in their account are you still put getting parody, banned. Well, he says if you say parody, you're he, not going to get He was not well. being truthful about that. And there, I mean, we can pull up some examples. I might end up doing a radar about this tomorrow. Um, but I think that, look, there's there some stuff to look forward to. I enjoy being unblocked. And I think that on certain issues, Russian disinformation, for instance, he is going to be more constant and not, let's say, banning people who talk about Ukraine and not the way that you're supposed to talk about Ukraine. Like but Brianna. it's a mixed bag. <laughs> like Brianna Joy Gray. <laughs> but it's a mixed bag. So we'll continue to cover that. And we'll have more rising for you right after this.
In a new episode of her podcast, conservative political commentator Candace Owens spoke with rapper M.I.A. M.I.A., who has received criticism regarding her commentary on the oppression of the Sri Lankan Tamils and Palestinians in the past, questioned why some celebrities can talk about politics without backlash, while others cannot. Let's watch a clip from that interview. And since then, in a wider, um, you know, it's been that argument of you're not this, so you can't talk about it. You know, like if you leave race out of it, you're not a woman, so you can't talk about it. You're not a man, you can't talk about it. You know, like that sort of easy to kind of shut down the thing is, is affected culture in, in how artists work, you know, like I see the, the newer generations suffering with this point. You know, a lot of the people that I work with or come, come across, they always say that, say, oh, but I'm a white male, so I can't touch this subject. You know, they, they say, well, I, I'm a Chinese person, so I have to do this. And I'm a da da da. And, and that sort of box building, mm-hmm. you know, it's really interesting to me. Just giving people power and. It's, it, it's crap because what's interesting is I'm a black woman and yes, I, so you're I a was black not woman, allowed which is to I say. To, <laughs> well, I wanted to bring it up to be like, yeah. I, you know, having been on this side where you, it, it's very confusing. Like also my dad's book, when he talks about monetary exploitation, he's not talking about monetary exploitation of Indian people specifically. It's like, no. Globalization and the globalist system is everyone, you know, includes everyone. So when when you're past a certain point and you see the picture, you cannot define things by race. If one people are oppressed in one place, and another person's oppressed in the other place, it's still oppression. And you get to see it like that, mm-hmm. you know? And if you identify the oppressor, which is, which is what the whole BLM thing is, you know, we're discussing oppression. And there's valuable conversations to be had between somebody like me and how the Tamil people who were engaged in an armed struggle, you know, and this, is, this was my response is to say, say, if you fast forward some time, where do you go with this? It, it would be a black revolution in America. You know, the, the, the fast forward, the thinking of um, this racial conversation, you know, or it's, you know, in America, it's not a territorial thing and it's not an ethnicity thing, but it is a racial thing. But if you get to the extreme end of this conversation, it's a, it's a revolution, it's a struggle, you know. So, so many liberals were particularly, you know, unsurprisingly frustrated here. MIA is someone who has been identified, I think, broadly with liberals on the left, if only because she is a hip-hop artist with a very popular song you probably remember from, I don't know, back in, let's say, 20... early, like, mid What is her song? The one with the gunshots in Yes, it. I thought so. Okay, I do like that song. <laughs> of, I mean, everybody yeah. liked the song back in the day. Okay. Um, it was in Slumdog Millionaire. 
I never saw a Slumdog Millionaire, oh, but that movie. feels right. Okay. So what was fascinating to me about this conversation, that there was all of this backlash, including around some comments that she made about how Beyonce is allowed to talk about politics. Beyonce was allowed to have the Black Lives Matter performance at the, the Super Bowl, but mm. she wasn't allowed to uh, talk about something like the, the Syrian crisis. I see. Because Beyonce is black. And so a lot is going on here. On one hand, I think that she's right. She's not allowed to talk about Syria. There are taboo topics, but it has less to do with Beyonce being black and MIA being Sri Lankan, and more to do with the fact that there are taboo topics that Beyonce would also get in trouble with for talking about. So this was a conversation more broadly about whether or not celebrities are only allowed to be celebrities and only allowed to access um, power and privilege, the cover of Vogue, et cetera, as long as they keep their pol politics within the bounds that are decided by the gatekeepers in this country. And it, it, it dovetails with some of the conversations Kanye, she's been having with Kanye West and others. And it's frustrating to me because there's half a point there. Like, it, mm -hmm. it is true that there's a lot of gatekeeping that goes on. It is curious why MIA only finds Candace Owens as an outlet to talk about these substantive issues, which are, are progressive in nature, and which I don't think there's a lot of substantive um, simpatico with with someone like Candace Owens. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to say exactly what's going on when... Celeb when, when certain conversations are closed off. I mean, celebrities, I think, despite you think of them as a, a subversive or radical or really unique in their thinking, I mean, there is an entire industry, the music industry, TV, film, et cetera, where there is a, a, a mainstream way of thinking. And they're within their mainstream, it's a very kind of socially, culturally, democratic, progressive kind of, um, not, I wouldn't say left, but you know, the line I'm drawing there between like mm -hmm. left and cultural progressive. And, and in that, you know, in that, but, but then the, a consensus can form, like, the, like with Ukraine, the consensus has just formed that what celebrities do is, is signal absolute 100% unquestioning, unthinking loyalty to the idea that we should, we should um, fund Ukraine for as long as necessary. They all want to do a photo op with Zelensky. Zelensky is the most histor uh, historic and, he, and, and he heroic the, figure. He got to be in Vogue, right? He, yeah. he gets the magazine Yeah, treatment. so that's what they saw, and it's, it's kind of, it's not exactly like that's like I don't it's not like five people sit in a room and decide exactly that no. this is what you get to talk about it's more confusing and diffuse than that but it does once it's crystallized it, like it has something to do with demand obviously they're they're representing the views of 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 what people who listen to them want to hear or what advertisers think they want to hear it's a very yeah. interesting system that that manufactures the consensus. Yeah, and, and a so, phrase. To, it, it, <laughs> so to, to some extent, I think that Candace is right, right to point this out. On the other hand, I do think there's a lot of what happens on the right characterizing this as, I think, a very specifically partisan issue yeah. as opposed to something that comes up all the time. So Me Too was once a fringe movement. The idea of being able to call out people like Harvey Weinstein, who were are now proven to have um, had a, a whole pattern and practice of abuse for decades. You know, that was another, this was a liberal left in, industry that was silencing his abuses and people felt like they couldn't speak out about it. Now the pendulum swung, swung in the other direction. I don't think the, the politics of what celebrities are allowed to say and therefore whether or not celebrities speaking politically is useful at all is necessarily a right-left issue. I will say that it's as long as the left doesn't allow there to be some space for commentary about 
uh, identity politics and some of the inconsistencies here, um, your world, you will have people who are kind of, I think, left, like MIA, increasingly moving in a rightward direction. Well, right, and we've seen that with, uh, with well, obviously with Joe Rogan, who's in like political commentary, but Dave Chappelle, uh, perhaps. Tulsi Gabbard. Um, uh, J.K. Rowling, you know, mm. ex ex expressing, well, no matter what you think about it, expressing views that are not, would not be considered for in, in that millions and millions and millions of people share them. And I think J.K. has taken it to a different place. I mean, Glenn Greenwald has written about this, how uh, Martina Natochlova initially said some things that were, I think, largely based in kind of not knowing a lot, kind of generalized comments about the line. She, she's a notably out um, lesbian tennis mm -hmm. player who said some things that were a little unknowing, got like steamrolled for them and has been pushed writer and writer in her views about trans rights and issues. I think that is something that can happen. Um, I don't know that J.K. Rowling seemed to be a little bit more ideologically cooked than someone like I, uh, Martina mm -hmm. Natatolova, but I definitely think that that's it. Well, but the actor who played um, Daniel Radcliffe mm -hmm. uh, said uh, exactly what you're saying right now, because he, he, he denounced her recently, or he said that um, you know not everyone who worked on Harry Potter was part of Harry Potter shares her views on this issue, and I'm thinking, of course they don't. What was the ex was there an expectation that everyone who helped produce the Harry Potter film franchise would have identical political well, or cultural or social views? That's think, so weird. But don't you think that's? I feel like that statement was more about him constantly being asked questions about whether or not he agrees with uh, J.K. Rowling and the fact of having stayed out of it. What, like 10 years since the last movie was made for this long, speaks to, I, I think the cultural pressure is for him to weigh in. And that is true. I think I don't know why he, he couldn't just say, yeah, I disagree with her, with her on that, but you know, she, I owe my entire career to her, so wait, wait, I'm wait. grateful to her. He doesn't, why does he have to say that? He said, I, don't, I agree with her on that. Why, is yeah. he, why does he also have to bend the knee and No, I went a little somehow, further into all oh, the harm she's propagating, et cetera, well, if et cetera. that's his belief, why can't he say that? Is there? Are you are you trying to subject him to another social pressure to say exactly what you would like him to say or to stay out of it? I'm just saying you couldn't get me to if, if I was in his position, you couldn't you could torture me over hot coals before you got me to denounce um, J.K. Rowling. If I was the actor who plays Harry Potter. Wait, but why? Because he owes her everything. I don't know. I I for example owe Glenn Greenwald a lot for being hired out of my law job to the Intercept. I owe. Well, and I would right, and I would Greenwald. never expect you to denounce and, him to well, the. Well, no, but I certainly I think and I think he would he likes this about me would be willing to disagree with him publicly and mount whatever criticisms that I think were right and fair in any given moment. And I don't think that's the same as denouncing a person or somehow being ungrateful. But I think that there, I think that the point that you're making right now is a, an important one. There are social pressures that swing in a lot of different directions. Candace Owens is also in trouble right now because she, with her and her own faction, because she retweeted a Max Blumenthal tweet, who is a prominent leftist, someone would say far leftist, someone who a lot of leftists don't even agree with about some criticism of some major Zionist organizations. Candace yes and it. And Ben Shapiro tweeted saying, hey, I think the ADL is a partisan hack organization too, but retweeting Max Blumenthal, who spends his life covering for quote Jew haters and stumping for Israel's destruction makes the conversation significantly worse. It's garbage. So the idea that the gatekeeping only exists on the left when you have here some real uh, fractures emerging among the kind of daily wire universe I think yeah. misses misses the forest well, with the trees.
I don't know. I don't. I literally don't know who Max Blumenthal is. I don't know who any of his views are. <laughs> this is a this is a you lefty kind of squabbling. That'd be fine. I don't think it is at all what Kanye has has now repeatedly said and doubled and tripled and quadrupled down on is uh, really vile. And uh, I think Candace should probably stop covering for it. And it, it, I'm glad to see Ben Shapiro having th a little bit this more one, pushback on This it. one isn't about Kanye West. And what's so interesting is that Candace got away with a lot of their relationship with Kanye West without having this kind of pushback from Ben Shapiro. So it's interesting to see where the lines are. Is it about her uh, palling around with someone who's making explicitly anti-Semitic remarks? Or is the line that Max Blumenthal, a Jewish man himself, is making these criticism of, um, you know, kind of like explicitly Zionist, lobbying groups, et cetera. Mm. So I don't know. I think, I think it's an interesting uh, cultural moment to continue to follow and parse. Seems like the Daily Wire holiday party will be very interesting. <laughs> we'll have a rising for you next. Governor Brian Kemp continues to hold a lead, earning 50% of voters' support over Democratic challenger Stacey Abrams, 45%, according to a recent Insider Advantage Fox 5 Atlanta poll. During an appearance on MSNBC this Sunday, Abrams blamed her flailing poll numbers on misinformation, specifically targeting black men. Let's watch. I do not believe it's because of a deep well of enthusiasm for my opponent. We know that black voters are often discounted, and unfortunately this year black men have been a very targeted population for misinformation. Not misinformation about what they want, but about why they want what they deserve. And my campaign has been the only one that has very intentionally, thoughtfully, and consistently reached out. That has been misconstrued as concern, when it indeed is just respect. Abrams' claims were backed by Biden advisor and former Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. Let's watch. There is definitely um, a target toward African-American men, not just to give them misinformation, but to make them so discouraged that they won't show up to vote. And again, I, I was, I've been a candidate before. I've been in this position before. Going into my race as mayor uh, five years ago, I was seven points down in the polls going into the week of the election. And I won by more than 800 votes because people showed up to vote. Joining us now to weigh in, our host of Straight Shot, No Chaser podcast, Teslin Figaro, and host of A Fresh Perspective, Jeff Charles. Welcome to you both. All right. I'll start with you, Jeff. What do you think they're talking about when they specifically cite the idea that black men are susceptible to misinformation that discourages them from coming to the polls? Well, see, but that's the entire problem, though. None of these people actually give examples of the misinformation that is supposedly discouraging black men, that is supposedly fooling us into thinking that maybe the Democratic Party isn't isn't perfect. So to me, like that, that's the issue. I mean, it's really what they don't understand is that talking points like that are part of the reason why more black men are becoming disillusioned with the left and with the Democratic Party. And they're, they're becoming more open to seeking out other options, or they'll just say a pox on both your houses and stay home. But really, this is just making excuses for why they are losing with minority voters. Yeah, Tesla, it feels like misinformation as a term is becoming this sort of catch-all that doesn't really mean anything and is used very, very poorly by people who want to, I, I don't even know what she's trying to say here. Like, it's not hypnotism. It's not mind control. What, what does she think is, is happening to, to black voters to sap their enthusiasm for her candidacy? I don't get it. 
Yeah, that's okay. I'm here to help you get it. Uh, number one, over 40 million people have already voted. Uh, Georgia has had record turnout. Uh, they would have you believe that no black men at all uh, have voted. And that's just simply not true. So rather than saying, I blame you, how about they say, I will do better. Blaming black voters or blaming black men is no different than blaming the person that got cheated on in the relationship. Perhaps if you just cooked more, I wouldn't have cheated. <laughs> at the end of the day, it is about who is trying to engage these voters and if they failed. And I want to give you this example. Just bear with me quickly. David Axelrod, a white man, a top Democrat, uh, Obama's go-to person, said the other day very clearly that Democrats have failed in their economic message. Nobody is saying that he's spreading misinformation. He said that they are not reaching out the way that they should. Hillary Rosen also said the same thing, which is a top Democrat strategist. No one is telling them, oh, well, you know, you're just spreading misinformation or you don't know what you're doing. And I have to say this to progressive as well, they also do this racist trope and they call it uh, misinformed voters, low education, uh, low information voters when they don't get their way. It is basically a racist trope that says that black men are lazy, that they're not involved, and it is flat out a lie. And let's talk about targeting voters. Stacey Abrams said they're being targeted for misinformation. Well, guess who's being targeted for actual engagement? The Hispanic community by the GOP has strategically been targeted with over 30 plus diversity centers with over 20 plus uh, strategically in Latino communities, brick and mortar that says, hey, come on in. We want to tell you about the Republican Party. And so the response to that from Democrats was, hey, well, we're doing advertisement. So rather than blaming black men, why don't you ask the Democrat Party? Why is it that they have not engaged black men or black women, because we do vote together, by the way, and talk about an economic uh, uh, policy that we would adhere to? And so it's a lie. It is a racist trope. It is something that is designed to blame and beat black men with a public scalding when they don't get their damn way. And, and it has to stop. And I also blame these black pundits who are running with this as well. Misinformation is very strategic. They're not confused. You know, black men, I just went to a reparations rally on Saturday. Thousands of people showed up, more so black men. And they showed up with less than a two week notice with no rapper as a headline, with no uh, political party that pushed it, with no political official that pushed it with less than two weeks, Bree, I've seen political elected officials that can't get 50 people in the room at best. So hmm. black men are engaged, but they may not be engaged and they may not be feeling you. The first thing is actually dating somebody, then engaging and then asking them to get married. Black men are engaged. They just ain't feeling you. So hmm. what do you have to do? Come back to the table and say, how can I bring you on? But also don't discredit black men who vote Democrat, but also understand, guess what? Black men are also conservative. And that's just something they're going to have to deal with. Mm. Well, according to New Hill reporting, black voters are worried about being blamed for potential Democratic losses in today's midterms. They are begging Democrats not to fall into what they see as a longstanding pattern. Black voters get blamed after Democratic disappointments and ignored after Democratic wins. I mean, we talked about this a little bit, how there were some folks who worked really hard in 2020 to win Georgia for Democrats uh, who said, look, once the, they turned around and didn't actually come through with the $2,000 checks and some of the other promises that the Biden campaign had made, the organizers weren't sure they were going to be able to turn folks out again. You know, is this what we're seeing right now in this moment, Jeff? And do you think there are certain pitches that were left on the table that could have actually resulted in higher turnout across the board. 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, even over the past year and a half or so, if you go on black Twitter or if you're in other spaces, you see black men complaining about the Biden administration, Democrats in general. Why? Because they made all these soaring promises to get elected. And then now that they're in office, they're doing for every other group except for black people. But And now they want to blame it on misinformation. I get why black voters might be concerned about being blamed, because that's what happens when Democrats lose when black people don't show up. It's like Tezan said, the blame doesn't go towards the Democratic Party. It goes towards the, vote, the voting base. The thing is, you can't say it's misinformation when black men and black women are struggling to make ends meet, when they're going to the grocery store and having to pay almost double, when they're at the pump trying to fill up their cars and paying a lot more money. You can't say it's misinformation. You have to look at the facts on the ground. And this shows a, a really a, a startling disconnect between Democrats and black voters. And, you know, I get on Republicans all the time for how they talk at and about black people. But with these talking points, the Democrats are no better. They may be just a little bit more slick with it. But at the end of the day, they are not delivering on their promises because they have taken black voters for granted for decades. When you're getting over 90 percent of the black vote for four decades without having to do a whole hell of a lot, this is the end result. Except the difference right now is that black people are becoming fed up with it. So if the Democrats don't get it together, this trend is only going to continue. Yeah. But why is let, let me ask you this, Brie, when white women flipped mm. on uh, the, the Democrat Party and they voted for Obama and then flipped with Trump to line up with their white men, when Hispanics has consistently flipped, you know this by working on the Bernie Sanders campaign, that the Latino community in Florida uh, voted uh, to the right, that the Latino community in California voted to the left. Why are those groups looked at as strategic voters? Why are those groups looked at as, oh, they're just well-informed and they're leveraging their vote? Why is it when it comes down to black voters, and particularly black men, it is this push on where you just don't know what you're talking about. Or maybe if you just had a little bit more information or perhaps you should just fall in line. That That is a problem that is much more deeper than just a political analysis, you know, conversation. It is about let's go ahead and tie men up on the on the pole and yeah. let's give them a shellacking. That's yeah. what this is. And we can we have to push back at that. And to black men that are saying, hey, I love I want them to know that they need to respect us. So I'm glad that we get the blame. I say this, I want them to respect you, but respecting you is not blaming you. In a relationship, respecting you is saying, I will do better. I will start cooking. Yeah. I will do all the things I said I was gonna do <laughs> when I decided to marry you. Not saying, well, you should have did uh, better. I will say with this, Boomerang said it best, the old school movie, love would have brought your ass home last night. And it's time for Democrats <laughs> to show some love to black voters, the same people that held them down for the last 60 years plus. Well, I, I, we have to leave it there. I can't say anything better than that. Thank you both for joining us here today. We will have more rising for you after this. Today's midterm elections will determine who will take control over the House and Senate. And while some polls predict a potential nightmare scenario for liberals in losing both chambers, Democrats remain optimistic, hoping that abortion rights and dropping gas prices are enough to entice voters in swing states. That's according to The Hill's Hannah Trudeau. Senior political correspondent for The Hill, Hannah Trudeau, joins us now to discuss. Welcome, Hannah. Hi guys, happy election day. Yes, happy election day to you. So is the uh, enthusiasm, so right now I'm seeing sort of fake enthusiasm being projected <laughs> or what I take to be fake enthusiasm. Behind the scenes, is, uh, is, the, is it a kind of demoralized um, environment among progressives the way you might expect given what we all think kind of is going to happen? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think behind the scenes and overall out in front, I mean, for that piece, it took me quite a while to find a couple of uh, Democrats who were not totally uh, unhopeful, I guess, uh, for, for the outcome of today's elections. I mean, look, the Democrats have been basically talking up potential losses, not just at, at the House level, which we've we've heard for months and months, but but more recently of the Senate, too. And so there are, you know, there's there's a doom and gloom that sort of prevails today and, and this week in the past couple of uh, weeks towards how the, the party in power will fare in, in, in today's elections. But I mean, in terms of the, the few that are kind of optimistic, they have a few reasons to point to. And I think one of the more fair arguments, or at least one of the bigger unknowns, is the the uh, early voting numbers, which you know do tend to favor Democrats. Obviously, we've seen uh, historic numbers of votes already been cast in some of these critical elections. I'm thinking Pennsylvania and Georgia, um, in particular, where it's really, really nail biter in both of those races. Um, but it's a big unknown. And so the, the Democrats who are hopeful are basically hanging those hopes on uh, the record number of turnout in some of these critical places to be enough to outweigh the the surge that's expected to come in person from the Republicans. Hannah, what do we know about uh, what polling tells us with respect to turnout in the abortion issue in particular? We saw in Kansas there were some earlier moments in the year during the primaries, uh, during these ballot initiatives, et cetera, that it seemed like the abortion issue specifically drove turnout for Democrats, even if it ne wasn't necessarily the issue that was ranked as a high priority in terms of overall issues like the economy, gas prices, inflation, things like that. Are, are, is, the, is the kind of unprecedented turnout that we're seeing in places like Georgia attributed to abortion being on the ballot? And if so, you know, why is it being treated like a zero-sum game? Why haven't Democrats been able to balance the benefits of using abortion as a draw to the polls and the broader issues which would incline independent voters to go ahead and vote for Democrats once they show up on Election Day? Yeah, that's a really good, good question. I mean, basically what's happened was Democrats... Uh, right after the Roe decision came out over the summer, uh, we're, we're, we're pretty much hopeful that that was going to be what saved them in the midterm. So they put all of their organizational muscle and their messaging towards abortion being that big uh, fight at the ballot box. And so they, they they planned on that message. They coalesced pretty quickly among both the, the you know, the progressive left and more moderate mainstream Democrats and, and really worked on a lot of the in a lot of these critical uh, states and, and districts to make that the message. And what we've seen over the past couple of months is, is like you kind of alluded to, that hasn't necessarily been uh, they haven't been able to balance that or juggle that between the overwhelming polling concerns of voters, number one being the economy. Um, and just and just haven't been able to make the case effectively that, you know, like many have tried in the last couple of, of weeks and months here that that abortion is, of course, tied to economic concerns of voters. But there's been a real disconnect. And so what we've seen in the last couple of days and weeks in particular is basically like a backing off of that issue. And so in terms of the early voting turnout, I don't know that there's been necessarily concrete data we can look to yet in places like Georgia with regard to abortion specifically. But um, it's certainly possible that that was one of the motivating factors, again, without having the data you know, in front of me or, or even available yet. But 
But it's because if, if that does end up being the case, it would likely be because those ballots uh, had already been cast well before Election Day. And so that factored into some of these more, like I, like I said earlier, some of these more hopeful, optimistic Democrats that factored into their thinking um, when they planned out their early vote strategy. They were thinking of some of these more um, bombshell kind of social issues being a, being a, a motivating factor early on. And uh, we'll see, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a risky strategy, but uh, certainly the, the, the numbers are there in terms of record-breaking turnout in Georgia, a, two point, uh, a, little, a little over 2 million voters uh, have already sent in ballots um, or voted at the polls. And I think in Pennsylvania, about a million or so. And that's, that's, that's very significant for those two states. Is the blame game already getting underway on the Democratic side? Yeah, I remember a lot of um, kind of narrative discussion after the last election cycle, a lot of um, bashing, uh, you know, kind of more centrist establishment Democrats, blaming uh, further left Democratic Socialist Democrats for scaring voters. And then oftentimes then progressives will say, well, if you actually delivered on the things we wanted, that, that would make voters happy. Is that kind of infighting getting underway? Yeah, a little bit, although uh, this this cycle will be different, I think, because um, it's really the progressives who like in the in the past cycles, obviously, um, you know, the, the 2016 election presidential level, the 2018 midterms, 2020 presidential election. Uh, the progressives were the ones largely making that economic populist pitch to voters. Um, and that's what the more centrists and moderates are now saying, wow, we should have really focused on that a little bit earlier on. So I think, you know, I, my focus in the next couple of days uh, following the results as soon as we get them is going to be whether progressives really seize on that opportunity to say, look, we've been sounding the alarm, notably Fetterman. Uh, and, and some other progressives down ballot, uh, Mandela Barnes, another one who's, you know, projected to lose. Um, but it's just a matter of how progressives are going to be able to or not make the case that they were actually the ones pushing uh, the economic message for the party at the party level, um, kind of to the chagrin of, of their more moderate counterparts. And that will obviously be interesting to see how that uh, fight goes <laughs> in the coming yeah. weeks and months. That's such an important point. Progressives have been screaming, not just in those pre previous election cycles, but in this one. Bernie Sanders was one of the first to raise his head up and say, maybe we should be talking about the economy. And there was a lot of blowback that he received as a consequence of doing so. So I'm very curious to see how the blame game pans out if Democratic, the Democratic fates uh, are <laughs> not what they're hoping to be uh, this evening and over the week as the results come out. Thank you so much for joining us, Hannah. Thanks for having me, guys. We'll have more rising after this. Ahead of the midterms, Democrats have given drastic warnings to voters. The fate of democracy itself depends upon this election. <laughs> According to Leland Vittert, quote, we are mercifully at the end of the worst, most negative, most hateful, and least productive election cycle in history, at least until the 2024 presidential election season begins. Anchor at News Nation and host of On Balance with Leland Vitter joins us now to discuss. Welcome. Hey, good to see you guys. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. We, we may only get a week, right, if Trump announces uh, next week. <laughs> so, I mean, what do you think? It's what, rough. It's what, real rough. What, if anything, do you think can get us out of this? If it is, in fact, true that we are in an escalating, um, bifurcated political environment that's uh, increasingly hateful and voters are increasingly distrustful of each other, of the respective parties, and frankly, many people are increasingly distrustful of the two-party system altogether, how, if at all, can the tide shift? 
history would tell us something really bad has to happen, and that's mm. the scary part of the situation we're in right now. Uh, if you think about the last couple of times America really came together, and by that I mean sort of bridge the partisan divide. Uh, 9-11, George W. Bush started getting approval numbers in the 70s or 80s. Uh, as president, it was clear there were Democrats, too, who who uh, came to a, a higher a higher calling of, of putting partisanship aside and believing in America and believing in our president rather than either their president or the other guy's president. Um, the other time, and I thought this was fascinating, uh, if you go back uh, and track the is the country on the right track or wrong track polling question. The last time the lines touched that people agreed we were on the right track, it's only happened once in the past 15 or so years. And that was as we came out of the 2008 financial crisis in the summer of 2009. And only then did half of America admit and think or believe, I should say, that we were on the right track. Uh, and that was after everything that had been so horrible in 2008 and 2009. So to your point, and I, it, it is hastening or chastening to say, I'm not really sure that you you come back from this without uh, something really terrible happen. Sadly. But coming out of the COVID yeah, crisis, I'm not even seem sure. Right? I think if 9/11 had ha happened today, I mean, God forbid, obviously, I'm not even sure that would uh, maybe there'd be like one day of favorable poll numbers for whoever's in charge before kind of the the, the partisan spin captured it. Right? COVID provides a an example of that, um, but I, I do take your point that if you know if um, if food prices got better, energy prices got better, if people had a little bit more, I think economic stability in their life, maybe the way they felt coming out of the the recession, um, it's it's possible more people would have an optimistic view, and I guess that could that could tamp down uh, the rhetoric a little bit because it's just getting. I mean, we, you know, you have, it's important, right, to have a historical perspective because there's been a lot of divisiveness and, and attack ads or whatever, you know, whatever predated ads, et cetera, you know, going back to the founding of the country. But it does seem, it seems especially, especially vile um, right now or in the last few years. Sure. I mean, yeah, it's a great point. Yeah. Um, I did a piece last night uh, on the program and I said, I don't know how the elections are going to go. Uh, no, nobody does. It's why we have elections. But I can tell you that for certain, the sun is going to rise uh, on Wednesday right. morning in the east, and it'll rise on Thursday morning in the east. And that's sort of a testament to America, right? Uh, elections are always messy things. They always have been. Democracy is, uh, by its nature, a messy thing. There's not a lot of debates over undated ballots uh, in, in Saudi Arabia these days. Uh, so we should be happy that we can have these discussions and have these fights, and we have mechanisms um, for dealing with them. And you, you, you started off by talking about how, you know, democracy is at risk and uh, the, the rhetoric that we're hearing from the left about threats to democracy. Um, I'm not old enough to remember, but I've read a lot about the Constitutional Convention. Um, remember, we had the, we had the revolution, uh, messy, uh, 1776, messy. The Articles of Confederation, messy. They didn't work. We basically dissolved the union and, create, and had a constitutional convention. Imagine if we had cable news and Twitter then. Yeah, but here, here's the problem. What I see as a gap between those situations and the tenor of discourse right now is that there's a much less clear articulation of what people's substantive goals are. So much of the attention from both 
sides of the aisle has been focused on these kind of really personal identity-like, culturally sorts of issues, where there has, I think, been a drive to get people to hate each other as opposed to each other's politics even. I don't even hear people saying, conservatives saying very often, oh, I hate that Democrats want to raise taxes. Much more frequently, I hear Democrats are too woke. And so to the extent that there could be a movement to say, we want to have a people's movement to fight for more economic equality. We want a people's movement to have more um, you know, speech freedoms and, and the kinds of substantive rights that people were fighting for in the context of the Revolutionary War. I, I don't see the appetite for, well, I shouldn't say that. There is an appetite for that, but I don't see political forces that are capitalizing on that kind of a desire as much as they're capitalizing on these kind of um, personal, cultural uh, wars that devolve into a kind of personal animus that seems much less constructive. Well, f fair enough. Uh, you know, Burr and Hamilton did have a, a duel, right? So I, I, <laughs> there, there's still sure. a long way to go down in terms of personal animosity. Uh, there was a caning on the Senate floor. Um, you had the penny presses that spewed just vile. Uh, but pa Paul Pelosi was just attacked by with a hammer in his well, I, 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 I understand that. That wasn't that wasn't a fellow member of of government. Sure. Um, so I, I think that, you know, it, it, we can all agree that mentally ill people do mentally ill things uh, quite literally on both sides. Of, right, of, but of, this is know, a politically... Doesn't make it, doesn't make it right. I think to your point, though... Let's not drag Andrew all mentally Breitbart ill people into this. This smart. is a politically motivated attack. That Paul Pelosi was chosen because of Nancy Pelosi's politics, well, sure. right? But I don't... I, 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 I don't... The, the dive to, hey, there was one crazy guy who was a, a drug addict from Canada who did some... who attacked somebody in California is somehow this this larger statement. I, I don't necessarily make the extrapolation. What well, I, what I do realize is what Andrew Breitbart said, which is that, that politics flows downstream of culture. Um, and the, the politicians are reactionary uh, mm -hmm. to American culture because that's where they derive the power from. Um, if, if Americans want to have a substantive debate on economics, which we need to have, and we need to have a discussion of the lack of fundamental fairness uh, in the American economy, great, let's have it. But the cultural commentators then have to drive that conversation. The politicians will respond. Politici politicians are remarkably good at exploiting what makes people angry. Um, and if, it, if, that tends, if that turns to be economic issues, they'll exploit it. Well, yeah, I think that's a fa that's a fair point. They're giving voters and viewers and audiences um, more of what they want to hear about. It's on you know the level of uh, I, I think that's true to some degree. It's it, it reflects the level of actual underlying frustration and even anger in the actual voting public. The actual that there's greater actual interest in what's going on in in government and in our culture from the average voter is is more informed probably than they were 50 or 100 or 200 years ago and that has given rise to a more bitter political contest for their support. I, I, I disagree. I think there are a lot of things that politicians can choose to pick up out of culture to emphasize. And there's a reason why Republicans are running on wokeness and not we're going to cancel Social Security because they know the latter isn't popular. And that, frankly, there's a huge amount of agreement. We are not actually a bifurcated country. When you talk about the economic issues, the, the divide there is between the top and the bottom. It's the top that's running this country. And that's why we don't get certain level of discourse happening about these very popular substantive political issues right now in the United States of America. Uh, I want to give you uh, the last word, Leland. There, there's a, there's a lot there to unpack. I would I would hasten to add that the 
the where people choose to focus, and I think you're seeing and we're hearing at least from the Democratic Party, uh, we heard from Third Way, uh, a big Democratic sort of centrist group, that there there needs to be a reckoning inside the Democratic Party on the on the culture issues. And we said it two nights ago on the program as well. There needs to be a reckoning inside the Republican Party uh, about whether or not they are going to focus on investigating Joe Biden and Hunter Biden and Anthony Fauci or whether they're going to focus on trying to make some deals with the White House uh, once they uh, are likely in control to make people's lives better economically and, and fulfill some of these promises. Those, those are all choices. Governing is choices. The, the, the thought I would leave you with is this, because we're, we're looking forward right to uh, President Trump's uh, possible or probable uh, re-announcement of running for president uh, next week. Uh, and I think about what, why Trump always watched cable television rather than uh, sort of dealt with political consultants because he said he felt as though cable TV producers had a better sense of what got people fired up on both sides, whether it be Morning Joe uh, or... Uh, you know, from Morning Joe to Sean Hannity, uh, and kind of everybody in between, including mm -hmm. Rachel Maddow, both, had this. Both Republicans, <laughs> the Republican on the liberal channel versus the Republican on the conservative channel. <laughs> no, that's your problem. Oh, wait, 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 I, 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 I guess you didn't hear me say Rachel Maddow. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, All right, Rachel Maddow. Although so, Brianna also considers Rachel Maddow to be a Republican, <laughs> but in my um, world, <laughs> take take your pick. But that that yeah. that there's a there's a, a feeling of what gets people. Uh, fired up, and, and we've yet to figure out a way to articulate, uh, Brianna, the, the economic issues in a way uh, that that do drive a real conversation. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much, Leland. Good luck tonight. Uh, I hope you have all your coffee and energy drinks ready to go. I get, yep, there it is. For I guess not just for tonight, but for the next like four days or however long it's going to take us to get oh, some of these results. Let, 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 let me be over quickly, please. Yeah. I, I, we only have so much caffeine and mm -hmm. uh, sugar and candy and chips and pizza for our decision desk. There is, I told them there is a limit. Yeah, uh, quick death is all we can hope for. We will be denied it, unfortunately. Good luck, Leland. We'll see you later. See you soon. More rising right after this. Campaigning for the 2022 midterms has wrapped up. And with some of the nation's most contested races running neck and neck, supporters of both parties are waiting with bated breath. Director of Emerson College Polls, Spencer Kimball, has kept an eye on all the major races, and he joins us now to break down Emerson's final midterms outlook and preview potential outcomes of today's elections. Welcome back, Spencer. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to see you. So, you know, what is your polling suggest, your modeling suggesting right now? We discussed early in the show, you know, the various scenarios I think everyone expects the House to flip and then, you know, looking closely at, at the Senate, a variety of scenarios, but it, it seems to me at this point like the, the middle scenario is still pretty favorable to the GOP. You know, what, what, are you, what are you reading in the tea leaves right now? Yeah, I would agree that the House looks like it's going to flip to the Republicans based on redistricting, based on systematically incumbent presidents lose, loses seats during midterm elections. But then we get to these Senate races, and it's going to be pretty exciting in Pennsylvania. Very tight race with Mehmet Oz and John Fetterman. Uh, the polling's had that kind of on both sides of, of the, uh, the blade. So we'll see where it ends up falling tonight. 
George is going to be an exciting race to watch with Raphael Warnock, the incumbent. Uh, he seems to have fallen a little bit behind Herschel Walker, but the caveat in Georgia is that you have to get to the 50% threshold to win. Otherwise, there'll be a runoff election. We've got two really exciting races out west in Nevada and Arizona. Republicans are looking to pick up two Senate seats out west. And these are really key matchups to better understand what I think of the Hispanic voter and to see if that vote is going to shift during this midterm election. And then finally, I think in the Senate, there's a couple of toss-ups that Republicans are looking at, potentially in New Hampshire. Uh, there's been some words from Chris Christie that um, Colorado might be in play, though our polling suggests that uh, Bennett has a five, six-point lead in Colorado. Same thing up in Washington State. Some folks have uh, Patty Murray in a close race versus Tiffany Smiley. We had that race a little bit higher for Murray, but uh, those the main four, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, probably uh, New Hampshire to keep an eye on as well. What's the most recent polling that we have out of Pennsylvania and how much from your perspective has the debate, uh, which did not go well for John Fetterman, affected how people are thinking about him in the state? Yeah, so that debate did have a negative impact. About 50% of voters left watching that debate with a with a less uh, you know impressive impersonation uh, or a takeaway from John Fetterman, and so it hurt him. And we see that in the undecided vote, generally breaking two to one for Oz. Now remember, there was only about four or five percent of voters that were undecided, and mm. it's a very close race, and so. This one could really fall on either side of the equation. Obviously, Fetterman's been out the last couple of days with endorsements from President, former President Obama. You had Oprah, and now we'll see if they can uh, get enough votes out of the Philadelphia area to put him over the top. And is the expectation that a runoff in Georgia would benefit Raphael Warnock? Uh, well, the expectation is if uh, Brian Kemp was to win that race for governor and Stacey Abrams wasn't on the ticket in a runoff, that the runoff would actually help out Walker because you wouldn't have the enthusiasm from the Abrams group. Mm. So it's kind of a tough rub to figure out what would happen in that runoff election. There was that conventional wisdom last time in 2020 where when you had the runoff that it would help the Republicans and now we have Senators Ossoff and Warnock for the Democrats. So right. always I mean, that's why I'm asking. On top yeah. of the fact that there has been, you know, Abrams has been a mixed bag, and there, you know, we've we've talked about a little bit today um, some frustration with black men who feel like they're being unfairly blamed for her uh, failure to do quite as well as Warnock, at least in the polling. And obviously, in her last election, she's never been successful in this regard. And I wonder whether or not she could actually be. A hindrance as much as she is potentially a help here. Yeah, no, it's very interesting because she was considered the stronger candidate coming out of the gate, uh, particularly out of 2018 and 2020. Mm -hmm. But the political climate has changed a little bit, and she's taken a lot of political hits over the four years. You know, she has been a target of the Republican Party. And so those negatives have impacted her. And we see that in her name recognition. Her unfavorables are in that high 40s. And it's a very intense unfavorable opinion. And so she's obviously been in the battle for a long time. And uh, it would be interesting if it goes to a runoff and how her vote would be impacted. 
Yeah, what's going on in these gubernatorial races versus the Senate races? I mean, many of them in the same states where you, you have you know, Brian Kemp uh, having an easier time against Stacey Abrams, Brian Kemp, the Republican versus the Democrat, than, than Herschel, is, Herschel Walker is against Warnock. Same dynamic, I think, in Pennsylvania, where Josh Shapiro, the Democratic candidate, uh, we don't know what's going to happen, but he's, it's, it's, I think it's, he's more ahead than Fetterman's not necessarily ahead at all. As, as same thing in Arizona, Kari Lake, the GOP candidate, a very, very full-throated MAGA candidate, uh, actually doing better in her matchup than Blake Masters. It's, it's, it's closer. I mean, these are all very close elections, but in each case, the, the, the gubernatorial candidate, it's different. It's out of, uh, out of sync with where the Senate candidate is. What, what explains what's going on there? Well, in some races across the country, the Democrats and Republicans put up weaker candidates in one of these races to not pay much attention to it. So if we take a look at, let's say, Kansas, uh, the Democrats didn't put up a very strong Senate candidacy against Jerry Moran, but Laura Kelly is running for governor and running very strong against Eric Schmidt, and she might get reelected. And so I think that was a yeah. you know intentional move by the Democrats. If we look over at uh, Ohio, we have the flip side where you know, the Republicans are far ahead in the governor's race and pulling up the Senate race. Um, it's a very interesting dynamic in Pennsylvania where Shapiro is up in the polling by six to 10 points. And the question is the coattails that these candidates are gonna have. Look at New Hampshire, you've got a Republican in Sununu who's gonna win by nearly 20 points, but potentially the Democrats holding that Senate seat by three to four. So I expect to see a lot of ticket splitting in some of the parts of the country. In other parts, they're going to pull each over the finish line, like down in Florida, DeSantis and Rubio seem to be pulling, trending up in the same direction. Uh, for the Democrats, that's similar as happening maybe in Colorado with Polis and Bennett. Yeah, and I saw that you've written recently about uh, the states in which abortion is also more explicitly on the ballot in Kentucky and Michigan. Um, also, I believe in California and Vermont, there are uh, 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 there's a ballot form for whether or not it's going to be a part of the state constitutions. And we saw in Kansas that it drew a drove turnout. How do you think abortion is going to play here? Because look, there's been this ongoing conversation about how when you ask people what their voting priorities are, abortion is not among them. However, we have seen it demonstrated in some of these states that it will drive turnout. And it, it, has, it strikes me that even though we say Democrats are making a mistake in emphasizing abortion, and I agree they shouldn't exclusively talk about abortion, but we say emphasizing abortion is a bad idea because people don't rank it as their top three. On the conservative side, there's been an emphasis on some of these kind of woke politics political issues, which no one also ranks as their top three, but very clearly drive people to the polls. And so I wonder what you see as the relationship between those things. Well, one, the Kansas vote was really interesting in August because 400,000 people voted to give abortion access, but didn't vote for any of the candidates. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they blanked the ballot. Where I'm really keeping my eye is in Michigan, because they do have that ballot initiative there to uh, recall the, I think it's a 1931 law uh, banning abortion access. And so it'll be interesting if that, how that vote goes, because uh, Gretchen Whitmore and uh, Tudor Dixon, Tudor Dixon, the Republican, is a pro-life pro candidate. Uh, I believe without exceptions, and Gretchen Whitmore, the incumbent governor, is a pro-choice candidate. And so that's kind of on the ballot, and it'll be interesting to see how that ballot question goes and looking at those governor results. Mm -hmm.
Well, our parent company, Nexstar, will have live election coverage of the 2022 midterms. Tonight, News Nation will be broadcasting as well, starting at 6 p.m. Eastern. And they are, of course, partnering with Decision Desk HQ to call all of the big races. They'll also have journalists from across the country, including The Hill. And of course, we'll continue to have all the election coverage we know you love right here on Rising. Spencer Kimball, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you again for having me. And we'll have more Rising right after this. Latino and black voters will likely show up in larger numbers for Republicans today than they have in previous elections. According to the latest Wall Street Journal survey, 17 percent of black voters responded they would vote Republican, up nearly 10 percentage points from the 2018 midterms. The same survey showed Democrats have lost a chunk of the Latino voting bloc. Since August, their lead with this base has gone from 11 points to five. The GOP has made significant inroads with Latino voters, a base that has traditionally voted for the Democrats. Now, this block is likely to make an impact in today's outcome, further proving that President Trump's reach with them has actually endured. So here to talk about how black and Latino voters could make the red wave redder is staff writer for The Hill, Rafael Bernal, and also Abraham Enriquez, a founder and president of Bienvenido U.S. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Um, I'll start with you, you, Abraham. Uh, you are um, out in Texas right now, paying attention to um, a lot of the races in that part of the country. Obviously, there are Latino GOP candidates on the ballot, like Myra Flores. Um, what do you see as Republicans having done particularly well to, uh, to, to connect uh, with Latinos and, and, and get them to move toward the right? Yeah, well, look, the New York Times just came out with a poll showing that Latino voters care about the uh, economy and the economic issue is more than twice as important than any other issue uh, down ballot. And so when you have a four decade high inflation and you realize that the Inflation Reduction Act, which the White House seems to uh, love to tout, did absolutely nothing for inflation has actually hurt uh, Hispanic workers and all Americans really. Uh, it forces Hispanics who have always been this swing vote to kind of pause and to realize what they have to lose voting Republicans. And you look down ballot and some of the Hispanic candidates who are running on uh, crushing inflation, on solving this issue and promoting economic opportunity, well, that's a very attractive message to Latino voters. Uh, and look, I agree with uh, Representative Elisa uh, from Michigan, who is a Democrat, who said a Democrat party has not done a good job of showing their economic approach to Latino voters. Uh, and so when, when you don't really uh, consistently talk to the Hispanic community, and more importantly, when you don't showcase that you're actually doing work uh, for the table, uh, talk issues, uh, then, then you start losing those uh, those voters. And I think that today we're going to see a little bit of that down ballot, of course. Abraham, what is the Republican plan to address inflation? Look, I think what's really important is to get government out of the way. During the pandemic, we saw that the uh, Democrat governors were so restricted of their small businesses that it tanked their economy. Uh, you look at conservative states where uh, governors allowed uh, businesses to flourish, allowed businesses to go out there and reopen. Uh, you saw a significant gain in the economy. So I think what it really is is just ensuring that the government doesn't uh, go in there and restrict a lot of these small businesses. You look at Governor DeSantis uh, out in Florida, the reason why he's gained so much Hispanic support around Florida voters uh, is because he's running on that uh, on that track record of being able to let businesses open and, and flourish. Uh, so I think that when Democrats come in and, and they talk about 
a government having to come in and help that that doesn't really that, that that sounds the alarm for hispanics who come from countries where they know that big government overreach doesn't always equal freedom Raphael, is this trend as pronounced as we're making it out to be with black and Latino voters? Because still, very significant numbers of black voters in particular still obviously are expected to vote with Democrats. Um, With Latinos, it's more mixed. But is the trend real as we're making it out to be? Well, I mean, that is what we're going to find out after tonight. That's the the easy (laughs) answer. Tell us now. But but there are are numbers that that point in in different directions. Uh, the, The number that I've been following for Latino voters is the National Election uh, National Association of Latino Elected Officials tracking poll. They did this for nine weeks. And the final result, what stuck with me, in both House and Senate races, they're about 60-30. 60% of Latino voters are going to vote for a Democrat. Of course, there are changes like Florida. This is a completely different proportion because Florida Republicans are very good at doing their jobs and convincing voters to vote for them. Um, But generally, the country, it's 60-30. That means that other 10%, the options are they might vote or not vote, and they might vote Republican or Democrat. Now, if it goes to 60-40, then Republicans have had a very good year with Latinos. If, it's, if it goes to 70-30, then Democrats have had a very good year with Latinos. But my takeaway is not a lot has changed. There hasn't been a big transition. But one point that Abraham was making that is really good is Democrats just did not show up. Mm. And we're going to see over the next week. I, I expect to be writing a lot of stories about fighting for uh, leadership positions in Democratic campaign committees, especially the DCCC, looking at, at, you know, where were they? Why were they allowing Republicans to take the lead? Maybe not with Latino voters, but at least in the narrative of pursuing these voters, which is really important. Well, I want to ask you about that and give you a chance to respond to something that Abraham said, because it is true that economy is the priority for Latino voters, followed by health care and education. Um, Abraham's uh, view of what Republicans are going to do seemed to largely center on a critique of how Democrats handled the COVID pandemic and a crit- criticism of um, shutdowns lasting as long as they did. Prospectively, that doesn't tell me a lot about how to solve the crisis that people are in now. Do you think that Democrats have met the moment in explaining what their plan is to address the economy to Latino voters and more broadly? I I love your question. Uh, What what are Republicans proposing to do about inflation? What are Republicans, what are Democrats, what is anybody proposing to do about inflation? (laughs) We know that inflation is being taken care of by the Fed. And nobody's going to campaign on what they're doing because that's probably going to cause unemployment. So right. honestly, I think so. politicians that are running on inflation on either side of the aisle are, I wouldn't say they're fundamentally lying, but they are fundamentally staying away from, from the realities of economic management. There's very little government can do right now to control inflation, except certain, you know, acts of responsibility, make sure that the uh, so that supply chains don't come crashing down again. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just basic governance. Mm-hmm. It's not really, and it, there, there's really not going to be any big changes that, that either party can do, and especially in divided government, there's nothing that either party can do to. So if the economy yeah. is a wash, why not talk about health care? I'll bring you back in, Abraham. What, how is the GOP responding to Latino concerns about health care? We saw Bernie win 70% of the Latino vote in Nevada, in part because that was such a key issue for Latino voters there. They're the most underinsured population in the country. What's the GOP's response? 
Yeah, so I think that's an incredible question, a great question, because looking at polling, uh, the top three issues, obviously economy is always number one, but healthcare trickles in at two or three almost every single time. And so I think at this point, if Republicans take back the House and maybe even the Senate, uh, it's pretty much going to be a trial run for what the presidential election looks like in 2024. And if Republicans can put together a good health care plan, because as we know that Republicans have been very weak on, on health care up to this point. But look, midterm elections are much less about real time solutions. We won't get a new house until January. And then even at that, lawmakers won't even actually start making effect uh, into the daily lives of, of citizens until, you know, even past that. Midterm elections are more so uh, voters uh, expressing their anger towards the uh, current administration. And it's really difficult for Democrats to campaign on a on a on a winning message when they have control of the White House, they have control of the House, they have control of the Senate. And yet nothing seems to be benefiting the uh, common uh, working class folk, which primarily makes up that Hispanic and black community. Uh, so I think that this election is much more about the frustrations that we're seeing in our communities. And whatever whatever tonight brings, it's going to be a really good uh, way for, for both parties to come together and really showcase that they can put something together uh, for the Hispanic and black communities when it comes to issues like health care, education, immigration reform. Hmm. Well, right. And also at the local level, we have, you know, we have a number of gubernatorial elections we're watching. Those are, you know, at this on the state level, Republicans can, I will see if they will lead with policy in places where they win election and reelection. Whereas, yes, at the federal government, we're going to have, you know, <laughs> no matter what happens tonight, we, we know we're going to be faced with some really um, relentless partisan gridlock. Um, I, you know, I expect um, um, coming coming out of this. Um, Raphael, any final predictions for what we're going to see tonight? Well, I'll just say the, the, one, uh, the one issue that did sort of change was uh, abortion replaced immigration as a big identity issue among Latinos, and that will probably have a pretty, pretty strong effect, maybe just in, in districts in California, maybe all over the country. But that, that will give some Democrats in tight races a little bit of hope. It's a strong secondary issue for them. Any parting uh, election predictions or thoughts, Abraham? You know what? Well, I well, I'll leave with this. I think it's so interesting that Democrats are outspending Republicans by Spanish language ads by more than three times. But yet Hispanic positive sentiments towards the GOP is at a 46 percent, which is which is really good for Republicans. Uh, and it shows two things. One, that the Hispanic vote has always been and will always have this swing dimension to it. So you have to consistently talk to the Hispanic community and showcase what you're doing. Uh, but two, with just a little bit of outreach, with just a little bit of effect, uh, you can have the Hispanic vote swing your way, which is what Republicans uh, are seeing in this election. Hmm. Well, Abraham Enriquez, Rafael Bernal, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you. And our parent company, Nexstar, by the way, will have live election coverage tonight of the 2022 midterms. And News Nation will be broadcasting starting at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. They'll be partnered with Decision Desk HQ to call all of the big races. They'll also have journalists from across the country, including The Hill. And of course, tomorrow on Rising, we'll be right back here to go over all of the night's election results. You won't want to miss it. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Have a good night. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye.